I think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline that says the provision of Christ on it. Have that out to follow along. And I was remiss earlier. Uh, Tom, you're having eye surgery this week. We need to pray for that. Please remember to pray uh, for Tom Kinneman as he's having eye surgery. That I'm real sensitive about my eyes, so just the thought of that kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies there. They, uh, but I can pray for you. So. We are in John chapter 6, a well-known, much-loved story, the feeding of the 5,000. may have heard it before. What new is there for us today? Turn to John chapter 6 in your Bibles, or you can uh, follow along in your uh, sermon outline, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have your word before us now. We pray this morning that it wouldn't just be an old familiar story, but that it would be a new story, that we would hear it again for the first time, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and teach us not just about ourselves, but about your son Jesus. We ask that you would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've seen a number of miracles so far in uh, John's gospel. 
Jesus has healed a crippled man. He brought life to the dead and dying. He's turned water into wine and uh, cleansed the temple and made time to speak with friends and enemies, both Pharisees and Samaritans. And now we've come to a miracle that draws together everything that Jesus has done so far. This miracle in John 6, commonly called the feeding of the 5,000, is exceptional in how it reveals Jesus' identity as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And it seems to have a major impact on the faith of his disciples. The significance of this miracle becomes all the greater when you realize that this is the only miracle that Jesus performs in all four Gospels. This is the only one that appears in all four. Another thing that makes this a great miracle, in my opinion, is that it confounds the liberal theologians trying to deny it. Folks like those in the Jesus Seminar who are wasting their lives trying to find the historical Jesus behind the biblical record rather than accepting the Gospels as the record of the historical Jesus. They have a hard time with this one. They can only deal with the miracle by reinterpreting it as good morals rather than a miracle. Their argument goes something like this, that uh, Jesus didn't feed 5,000 people with uh, five loaves and two fish. No, it was his example of faith that inspired others to break out the food that they had with them all along and share it with others. It's a story about generosity, not divine multiplication, and it calls us to share with others. It's not about believing in Jesus, but giving to the food bank. Anyway, that's what they say. But there's a few problems with that view. First, it does appear in all four of the Gospels, and none of them notice or record anything like this. All of them, and we have four independent sources, two of whom were eyewitnesses, seem to think it was a genuine miracle. Second, remember, three of the four Gospels were written when a great number of eyewitnesses were still alive. Only the Gospel of John is written much later. So obviously Matthew, Mark, and Luke felt comfortable making the claim that Jesus performed this miracle just as they said, knowing there were lots of people around who could confirm or deny what they wrote. Either all four were lying in the face of all these eyewitnesses, or this was, in fact, the miracle that they described. And finally, the liberal version wouldn't bring about any of the effects the gospel writers tie to this miracle. Luke directly links this to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, sent from God. And John connects this miracle to the manna that God provided during the Exodus, and to Jesus' claim that he is now the bread of life, both of which are critical to the flow of these accounts of Christ's life, so much so that if they were changed, we would wind up with a different Jesus and a different gospel. So it's not just a nice morality play. It's a miracle by the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Now, if this passage did nothing but confound liberal scholars, it would glorify God and serve a great purpose. But it has much else to tell us about what's happening and who Jesus was and what he was doing. And so we start by looking at a matter of perspective, a matter of perspective, starting at verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Have you ever been confronted with an impossible situation? A situation that's not only beyond your ability to solve, but even beyond your ability to, to simply deal with. A situation so difficult that you don't know where to start. An impossible situation. And do you occasionally find your vocabulary filled with phrases like, it can't be done, it won't work, it's not going to happen, it's impossible. When you look at your life, what's on your list of impossibilities? Maybe your family situation has become impossible. Maybe your financial situation has become impossible. Got a lot of head nods on the family situation there. Maybe your work situation has become impossible. Maybe your spiritual life has become impossible. And yet we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of John, the word impossible is not in Jesus' vocabulary. And now we've come to John 6 where once again we have the opportunity to look at one of these impossible situations. And we're going to see how Jesus handles this impossible situation and how he can handle our impossible situations. But first we have to understand this whole issue of impossibility is a matter of perspective. And to a small child, arithmetic can be impossible. But to an adult, it's not only possible, it's handled with relative ease. So in trying to understand the impossible, we need to start by looking at it from two different perspectives. And we'll start with the human perspective, and that should be the first blank there in your outline, the human perspective. And the human perspective stands by the dictionary definition. Webster's defines uh, the word impossible as incapable of occurring, insurmountably difficult, hopeless. And so many of our situations seem to be impossible when viewed from a finite human perspective. The human perspective is a horizontal view. We look at ourselves, our friends, our situation, the world around us. And that's how Jesus' disciples viewed things. John's brief introduction to the context of this miracle just gives us a little more than the basic facts. Mark's account is much more graphic. He tells us in Mark that when the disciples returned from their preaching mission in Mark 6, it says the apostles returned to Jesus, told them all they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So evidently, by the time the disciples finished telling Jesus what had happened, they're all getting, quote, peopled to death by all these growing crowds, the large crowds that were following them. And the press on them is so great, they couldn't even break away to eat. So Jesus prescribes a retreat on the north side of the lake. I should put in a plug for the men's retreat here. But, but Luke says they withdrew to Bethsaida. It's at the top of the lake where the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. It's about four miles to Bethsaida by boat and about eight miles by foot. So when the people see the disciples set sail for Bethsaida, the young and the strong begin to charge north along the lake. And hundreds more from the lakeside villages probably join them, calling out to their friends to come along. So finally, thousands converge on the apostles' retreat site in this sort of noisy, jostling expectation. And then Mark says, 
And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So much for time away. One commentator says there might as well have been a sign there that said, Welcome to church camp, activities from dawn to dusk. I mean, the disciples are exhausted. They want to get away and rest. The people are tired. They just walked eight miles to see Jesus. Think about that. When's the last time you walked eight miles? And there's a whole lot of people who are huffing and puffing when Jesus gets out of the boat. And I think the disciples just want Jesus to send them away. I'm pretty sure that's what I would have wanted. But Luke tells us, in Luke 9, Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And the Greek words used there suggest that Jesus preached at great length on the same kingdom theme that he told the apostles to preach on. He told them about the sovereign reign of God and called them the kingdom living and kingdom ethics and the need to live by faith and repentance. And he would tell them the kingdom was present among them and he'd invite them to enter the kingdom and he would perform healing miracles to confirm what he said. Everyone is tired, but Jesus kept going and the crowd soaks it up. So much so that Luke says they were all there until late in the afternoon and everyone's getting hungry. And here they were, they're trying to get away to the hills with Jesus and these huge crowds keep following them. And they needed a break and they needed a rest and they needed time to get ready to return to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They know that going back to Jerusalem means facing more testing and greater opposition. They didn't want to deal with demanding crowds now that just want to be left alone for a while. That's the human perspective. But the second perspective is very different. It's a vertical perspective, and that's because it's the divine perspective. The divine perspective. God's perspective is a vertical one. Infinite God reaching down to finite man. There's no burden too heavy to lift when it's God doing the lifting. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah brings the word of the Lord. In Jeremiah 32, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And that served to confirm the people, uh, for the people, the earlier words of Jeremiah in that same chapter when he had prayed, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then in the New Testament, Jesus says, Luke 18, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And therefore, for Jesus, the large crowds aren't an obstacle, but an opportunity. It's an opportunity for him to reveal his glory through another miraculous sign, at the same time to stretch his disciples' faith. And he begins with a test for Philip. Of course, Philip's answer is, we can't do that. It's impossible, because for Philip, it's just a matter of money. Look at verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Jesus had asked Philip, 
where they could buy enough bread for all these people. And characteristically, Philip responds by letting Jesus know this is an impossible situation. See, Philip is perplexed. Philip's perplexed. Jesus has confronted him with an impossible situation. And with computer speed, he responds by giving Jesus a spreadsheet answer. He says in verse 7, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarii is a day's wage. So basically, that equals about eight months' wages. And that's not enough to feed all these people. I mean, can't you just hear Philip? You're sitting there. Come on, Jesus. You know, I know you can do great stuff like turning water into wine and feeling a, a healing a few folks uh, here and there. But now we're talking about feeding 5,000 people. We can't do that. We don't have enough money. Actually, the text says there were 5,000 men with their families. It could have easily been more than 10,000 people. Well, Philip's not doing very well on the test. See, Philip's balance sheet doesn't show the infinite wealth and power of God. As Ephesians 3.20 says, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. However, verse 6 lets us know this isn't a serious attempt on the part of Jesus to obtain the necessary amount of food. He's asked in, uh, in order to show uh, Philip and the disciples that Jesus has a purpose, that Jesus had a purpose here. He already knew what he was going to do, and that's often the case. God already knows what he's going to do. He asks us so we can see if we're following his will or not, if we, as Paul says in Philippians 2, have the mind of Christ. He questions us so we can see if we're doing God's work in God's way with God's supplies, or if we're merely operating under our own power, trying to minister to others in our own strength. And his question was meant to show Philip that there's a real problem here, that there really is an impossible situation. And what Jesus was about to do is meet a genuine human need which normal human resources were unable to meet. He asked for the non-existent human solution so there'd be no doubt that when the real solution, when it came, came from God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, wrote that Jesus wasn't asking Philip to multiply the bread, but to multiply his faith. Jesus wanted not food, but faith. He's testing Philip to show him that he can't put his faith in his own abilities or his own possessions or his own intellect and surely not in his own amount of money but that he needed to put his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus moves on from Philip to Andrew. Andrew's appeared on the scene with a small boy. And the ESV says he, there's a boy with him. I, I noticed in the Revised Standard Version it says a lad, which would be the Scottish way of describing it. But it's actually not correct because it uses the diminutive, so it should be a wee lad. That would be more accurate. But we move from a matter of money to a matter of food. A matter of money to a matter of food. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Andrew has brought a small boy to Jesus. Remember, Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. Every time we see Andrew in the Bible, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. And now he's brought a small boy who offers his lunch to Jesus. 
And now Andrew is struck by what we used to call in the army a BFO, a blinding flash of the obvious. And Andrew says in verse 9, essentially, how far will this little bit of food go among so many people? See, Andrew's puzzled. Andrew was puzzled. Clearly, this little bit of food is enough for one. Just one person. The five barley loaves are small, hard cakes, uh, roughly uh, equivalent to biscuits. The two fish are most likely preserved fish, not unlike pickled sardines that you would then put on the barley loaves. We're not talking about largemouth bass here. Calm down, Mark. All the fishermen fish. It's not a lot of food. It's enough for one person. It's somebody's lunch. And Andrews, you sort of get the idea that he's implying to the Lord that, you know, we don't have enough food for all these people, but Jesus, it's enough for you. You take it. You need your strength. The rest of us will get by. And in fact, in Mark's telling of this event, the disciples specifically tell Jesus to send the people away. But this little boy offers his simple meal to Jesus anyway. And Jesus used what little he had and did great things with it. Like the widow who put her might in the temple offering, this little boy gave all he had. And I immediately thought, and I'll admit, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I thought how we neglect to bring our things to Jesus because they amount to so little in our eyes. We think what we have is so meager that it can't possibly make a difference. We'll just keep it to ourselves. We won't bother anyone else with our insignificant little offering. And we think things like, I don't have very much time you know, to give. I'm so busy anyway, and besides, no one will really miss me if I'm not there. When in reality, the Lord wants you to fellowship among his people. And when you're not there, he misses you as well as us. We think things like, I don't have you know, very many talents uh, to give. My abilities are rather limited. I can't do this as well as so-and-so does. And besides, no one really wants me to help anyway. And in reality, the Lord wants you to be active in his service. And when you're not serving him, he wants you there as well as us. And we think things like, I don't have very much money to offer. My tithe doesn't actually amount to very much. Besides, the church is doing okay. No one really needs what little I can give anyway. When in reality, the Lord wants you to tithe to invest the first 10% uh, in his work, regardless of what the dollar and cents amount adds up to. When you're not investing in his work, he misses you as well as us. But thankfully for the disciples, thankfully for us, Jesus had patience. Jesus had patience. The disciples at this point aren't getting it at all. There's thousands of people. There's a little bit of food. It's an impossible situation. And in my mental imagination of the scene, I, I see Jesus sighing in quiet frustration at the disciples' lack of faith. Not only were the crowds spiritually unprepared to understand who Jesus was and what he could do, but his disciples are still spiritually unprepared as well. I mean, they thought they had to be able to figure it all out. You know, what's Jesus going to do so that they could put their faith in him? They wanted to see so that they might believe. And they're making the same mistake as the Pharisees because the biblical order of things is believe in order that you might see. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And often we suffer from the same problem. And we don't realize that following Jesus at its simplest 
is a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. That's kind of an eyewitness type of description. Just notice that. There's much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now we saw that when they were confronted with this impossible situation, that neither Philip nor Andrew knew quite what to do. Philip checked the bank account, Andrew opened the pantry, and neither held enough. They showed us the impossibility of meeting the situation from human resources and with human wisdom. And what they needed to do was look to the Lord. And if they had done that, they would have seen that Jesus is prepared. Jesus is prepared. So now we see that Jesus takes charge of the situation. He gives thanks for the food and has it distributed. He shows the disciples they need to put their faith in him, not what they can see or in what they can figure out on their own. And notice in verses 11 and 12, the people were given as much food as they wanted. They all had enough to eat. And Jesus gives to all, not just to the disciples. And he gives in abundance, not in small measured portions. And he wants the disciples to realize he's able to supply all human needs, no matter how great the need, no matter how impossible the situation. And so the disciples are persuaded. The disciples are persuaded. Look at, look at this. Jesus sends them out to gather up the leftovers. Now remember, who, who said this was impossible? The disciples. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. How many baskets of leftovers were collected? Twelve. Who's holding these baskets of leftover food? The disciples. And you've got a situation where each disciple is standing there holding a basket of leftover food. Each disciple is holding in his hands the evidence that Christ is indeed the person in whom they're to put their faith. Be very careful before you say impossible to the sovereign God of the universe. You may be left holding a basket that says otherwise. I mean, just imagine the scene. Twelve disciples standing in a circle around Jesus, each holding a basket of food. Standing there looking at the Lord with more food than they started with. Imagine Jesus just looking back at him. Eyes that are saying, now do you believe? Now do you know where to put your faith? Now are you prepared to stop trusting in yourselves and start trusting in me? Now are you going to stop trying human solutions and start trying divine solutions? Now, my disciples, now will you look to me? There's a lesson in the leftovers. God gives in abundance. He takes whatever we offer him, whatever we have, whatever the situation, whatever impossible it may be in terms of our time or talents or ties or anything, and he multiplies its effectiveness beyond our wildest imagination, beyond any expectation, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. It's the lesson of the leftovers. 
It's a lesson the disciples will remember the rest of their lives. When faced with an impossible situation, Jesus teaches them that simple faith makes it a matter of possibility. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Who God is in no way depends on what we try to make him out to be. Who God is in no way depends on what we try to make him out to be. We see here, verse 14, the crowd decides Jesus is the prophet. They're specifically referring to the prophet that Moses spoke about back in Deuteronomy 18. And they kind of decide they like this miracle. And so they decide they're going to make him king, which, of course, means they'll always have enough. I mean, if he can do this with five little loaves, imagine what he can do with a whole lot of food. But little do they realize that Jesus already is the prophet. He already is the priest. He already is the king. And little do they realize that Jesus already offers enough of what really matters, not in terms of food, but in terms of faith. See, what God is going to do to us and what God is going to do with us and what God is going to do through us in no way depends on the size of what we bring. After all, God's power is unlimited. God's power is unlimited. Our duty lies in bringing what we have to the Lord. And he wants us in faith to lay it at his feet, believing that his great power can make our meager offerings multiply into his mighty outcomes. But Lord, there are only five little loaves. And there are only five little loaves when they're in our hands. But when they're in Jesus' hands, it's food for 5,000. I'm reminded of the story in Mark 9, one of my favorites. You may remember I preached on it last Easter where a distraught father brings his son to Jesus. The boy is possessed by an evil spirit and the father pleads with Jesus. Mark 9, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That should be our prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, there's an Old Testament allusion to this feeding of the 5,000, which anyone raised in the synagogue would have known about. To see it, we have to go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 4 and the prophet Elisha. Elisha commanded his servant to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread. Far fewer number of people, a lot more food. And it says, a man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God, Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 